Well, we welcome everybody to this week's edition of View from the Press Box. I'm Scott Hogan. Joining me, as always, is Brad Hallier. It is officially, Brad, you and I just got home from uh, opening round sub-state games in Class 1A tonight, so I guess it is officially postseason basketball time here in Central Kansas. Yep, yeah, the madness is it's here, and uh, it's always an exciting time of the year. You know, some of these... It's uh, it, it's you know, winter go home for a lot of these teams, and it's just kind of a weird feeling how one A's get started and everybody else is still in regular season play, though. But uh, that's just how it is, I guess. Well, somebody was wondering, or more than one people, they were like, "Well, why does one A start um, their quarterfinals uh, not quite a week ahead of everybody else?" But why, why do they do that, Brad? And I think the the simple short answer to that is to have enough officials for the postseason. I'm pretty sure that's the reason. Yeah, uh, you know, this last Thursday and Friday of the, of the you know, 6A down to 2A regular season, it's kind of a limited schedule because for 2A and 3A, their sub-state brackets are already out. And, you know, teams like Bueller and McPherson play tonight, so they're not playing tomorrow. So this, uh, this so the schedule is a little bit lighter, and this enables them to get more officials for, you know, for 1A sub-states, which there, thereby takes away officials for Monday and Tuesday because you, you just have fewer games now. Yeah, so I'm, I'm sure that that's the reason why with our shortage of officials. Well, let's go ahead and, and take a look at some of those brackets that are out. You had the Central Christian boys tonight. They won, and the Little River boys um, also advanced tonight. I, I think everybody there in, in that Solomon 1A substate on the girls' side, Little River, um, I think no doubt that the heavy, heavy favorite – um, to march on in the states, so I don't know, um, not a lot to visit with there. But let's look at a couple of our two um, A substates. <clears throat> Excuse me. We'll start on the girls' side. Um, over in uh, Marion, you've got Hillsborough at nineteen and one, the number one seed. They'll play Marion in the opener. I'm actually going to have that game next week. Other area teams, Mound Ridge at 17 and three. They're the two seed. And then Breen Academy sits there as the three seed at 15 and five. Does anybody give Hillsborough a run for their money in this substate? I think, I think Mound Ridge is good enough on the right night where they could do it. Uh, I've seen Breen. Uh, they're not bad. The one thing that Breen, of course, they're the defending state champion. Uh, sometimes that Breen just will have a hard time scoring. And I think against teams like Hillsborough and Mound Ridge, I just don't think you can play him to a 31 to 30 game. I could be wrong about that, but um, I just don't know if Breen has the offensive firepower to, to win this sub state. Uh, and like I said, I think on the right night, Mount Ridge is capable of beating a team like Hillsborough. Uh, I still expect Hillsborough to win it though. Yeah, I, I do as well. I think uh, maybe a team of destiny there um, this season. Let's look at a couple of three, a, Substates, Brad. We'll get to the brutal one second. Let's look at Hoisington first. Again, several area teams out there. Haven secured the top seed in that substate, Brad. Uh, they must have had the tiebreaker. I think they won the head-to-head against Hoisington. They did. Both teams 13 and 7, so you're not overwhelmed. But those are the only teams over 500. Um, so they sure could be on a collision course that is hosted by Hoisington, Brad, do you think if they rematch, Hoisington would get revenge on Haven? It'll be interesting. 
I think that even a semifinal matchup with a very young and promising Larned team won't be easy for Haven. Uh, I, I do, you know, uh, Ellsworth sitting down there at the three seed at nine and 11, you know, I don't know if they would have enough. It, it would be a pretty, pretty competitive matchup. You know, that Hoisington would be looking forward to uh, another matchup with Haven. I, I just think it's a toss up at that point, you know, two very similar teams. And it's just kind of with the team that maybe figures out how to knock some shots down, get some rebounds and stay out of foul trouble. The reason you might go with Hoisington would be, of course, they are hosting that sub-state, but should be a lot of fun. Uh, the one in southeast is Celine, Brad, and this is, I think, pretty much hands down the toughest girls sub-state probably in the state of Kansas. I actually had the Halstead and Smoky Valley game earlier this week, and Smoky Valley was able to pick up the victory over Halstead. They didn't lead for much of that game, but they led when it counted. That was a great ball game. Halstead still was able to secure the one seed with an identical record as Heston, but Halstead won that head-to-head. So Halstead is 17-3. and They start with Council Grove. Heston at 17-3. and They'll get a 9-10 and Burlington team. The three-seed this is an intriguing matchup for me. A Santa Fe Trail at 16 and 3. They'll take on Smoky Valley, who's 14 and 6. And then a great 4-5 matchup. Osage City, the 4, 16 and 4, takes on Southeast of Saline at 15 and 5. So here we go. Do you see any upsets in that first round? I really wouldn't consider Southeast of Saline winning on the road an upset, but do you see any chance of an upset? in the first round. I mean, if you want to consider Smoky Valley over Santa Fe Trail and upset, I mean, I guess you could go that route. I know Santa Fe Trail has been to state two straight years, but they've also got their door, their doors blown off those uh, last two years. Um, I, you know, I'm trying to come up with a scenario, Scott, where I don't see Smoky Valley maybe winning this substate. Um, man, I mean... I don't know, Scott. I, I, I think Smoky Valley is legitimately good. And they've won, what, 12 or 13 of their last 15 games. One of those losses, correct me if I'm wrong, was to Heston. And another loss was to in double overtime to, I think, Clay Center or something like that. Maybe I, I can't remember exactly who it was to. Yeah, I had that game. Okay, okay. So, yeah. So, the, the, I, I think Smoky wins over Santa Fe Trail. And then they'll play Heston, and that's uh, pretty much a toss-up at that point. Um, I I just really like Smoky Valley. Maybe not to win this sub-state, but gosh, I wouldn't be surprised in any capacity if they did. I, I wouldn't either. Uh, they they showed me a lot in that Halstead game, the way the way they battled and just stayed in that game and and took advantage down the stretch um, to win that game on their home floor. And Brad, they are. CKL champions with that win. That's their first girls league title since 1987. And you win, I don't care what year it is, you win the CKL, you are legitimate. And and that's exactly what they did. So they're the CKL champion and they're the number six seed in their sub-state. <laughs> that's exactly right. I mean, ah, man, it's, they got to change it, Scott. I mean, yeah. for some of those areas of the state that maybe that we've talked about before, how, they're maybe afraid that if they go that way, they'll never see state again. Hey, you know what? 
everything's cyclical. It could be your substate in five years where you have a magical 17-3 and three season and you're the four seed because your substate is so loaded. I mean, come on. It, it's time to do the right thing. It's past time to do the right thing. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of it. I mean, I am. Ah, Smoky Valley should not be the number six seed. Southeast of Celine, they're 15-5, and five, Scott. They should be playing a home game next week. Well, um, Smoky Valley, 14 and 6. You know what seed they would be in the Hoisington or substate we just looked at? Yeah, they'd be the one. It'd be the one. <laughs> and now they're in a substate where they're the six seed. Yeah, it, it it's insane now. The broadcaster part of me, Brad, um, I think I'm going to have this substate. Oh, you talk about, am I ready for that? Holy, yeah, sign me up on lock, stock, and barrel. There's going to be some fantastic games in this substate i mean if, if you had halstead smoky valley or halstead heston as a final wow that that will be a lot of fun i love the way that even though they lost against smoky valley brad i love the way that halstead team plays i mean they are just all over you defensively chasing you around getting turnovers um <laughs> And they, they play a couple of freshmen, a lot of minutes. Yep. Uh, the younger Schroeder girl, Jordy uh, Schroeder, and uh, Bernal is the other one. Um, both of those are really good freshmen, along with we know the upperclassmen now that played as freshmen and sophomores. So uh, uh, I got to talk with Derek Schutte quite a bit before that Smoky Valley game. Um, he's optimistic, you know, if he can just get out of this substate and to Hutchison, I think they'd have a great chance, but that that's the whole key. You gotta get out of this substate somehow. Does anybody does and look, I'm I'm not trying to say that I'm, you know, wearing Halstead Dragon attire next week or anything like that, but does anybody honestly deserve a lengthy trip to Hutchinson and along San Hutchinson more than Derek Shooty does? He's taken that that team to state twice now. Let's recap those two state tournaments, shall we? The first time they win in overtime, their first state tournament win in school history. Oh, I'm sorry. No more state tournament because of COVID. They're part of the forever four. They didn't even get a chance to play in the semifinals. Then the next year, they did. You remember this, Scott? They did like the regionalized first round of state where they didn't they, they didn't seed it. They instead had, you know, the winner of this subset automatically play the winner of this subset. Mm-hmm. And what do they have to do? They had to go to Cheney in the first round, lost in double overtime. What did Cheney do? They won it that year. I think you had that game, didn't you? I did. That was one of the greatest high school basketball games I'd ever seen. And, gosh, again, I'm not saying that I'm rooting openly for Halston or anything like that, but, man, I'm telling you, Derek Schutte deserves a lengthy stay in Hutchinson, if not this year, sometime soon. Yeah. I, yeah, you're you're rooting for them. You know, um, Jason Drewlard, he's, he, what a great, great dude. Great dude. Smoky Valley, you're, you're kind of rooting for him. I, you know, Brad, I – I'll be neutral for, for all of those games anyhow. Um, so I can't openly root for any of them, but either one of those two guys, I mean, we know Matt Richardson as well. Um, great guy over at Heston won a ton of games, several state titles over there. Um, you, you could root for any, all three of those guys this next week, unfortunately um, only one of them. Well, and maybe not even in, you know, man, maybe Santa Fe Trail or Osage City. You, you don't know. It's so loaded. You, the top six teams, Brad, could win this substate. That's, I guess that's the point. <laughs> yeah, they could all win the substate. And I don't think anybody would bat an eye if any of those six teams won it. They certainly wouldn't. So I'm certainly looking 
forward to that next week. Let's switch over to the boys' side a little bit. Um, in 1A, I think, Brad, did you say that now Central plays Elyria Christian boys next week? That's right. And then they, that will be a fun, fun ball game. Do you think Central can – that's a really good Elyria team. You, you, you and I both know Zach Goodrich over there, the head coach over there. They've got a really, really good team. They've only been – beaten once this year can the central have a chance in that game well illyria in their current 19 game winning streak they honestly they, they haven't beaten most of the teams they've embarrassed most of the teams that they've played one thing that they haven't embarrassed though is central christian and they played them not once but twice back in december so admittedly both teams are not going to resemble the teams that they were in december but especially central christian don't forget who didn't play for Central Christian in December? Brody Fraze. Mm-hmm. You know, he was at Inman at the time, and then he transferred down. So, you know, I, 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 at the very least, Central Christian is going to go into that game. You know, they're not going there thinking, well, if this happens and this happens and this happens, we may have a chance. No, they're going, they're going to go into that game thinking that, hey, we can win this game. Yeah, when I talked to Zach Goodrich a couple weeks ago, uh, he felt like that that's at Lebo, correct? Correct. He felt like that that was a big if he could get past, you know, if he if he would meet Central, get past them and somehow pick up a win on Lebo's home floor. He he's real optimistic if they could get to state. Yeah, I would I would agree that if it's one of those things if Illyria makes it to state, watch out. Boy, I, I, I think that their substate road is awfully tricky though, and if they can navigate this, I think that they will. It'll be, it'll be like a load off now. Now they can just go out and play. But uh, boy, for for a team that's nineteen and one and ranked number one in their classification, and considering the number two seed has only thirteen wins, I'm not sure anybody's got a trickier road to state than Illyria does. Yeah, that's what he was. He, you could tell he he was concerned that they have a tough road um, to get there. Of course, I mean it shouldn't be easy to get to state, but again, some are unnecessarily tricky, as we pointed out there at Southeast of Saline. Well, on the boys' side in Class 2A at the Marion Substate, Mound Ridge has got the top seed at 17-3. and three. They come in to that tournament a win over Sterling last week. Uh, the two seed is El Saline. I saw Sterling just obliterate them, but that's still a very good El Saline team at 16-4, and four, the two seed. And then Cottonwood Falls or Chase County, 13-6. And then Hillsboro at 12-8, and eight, the four seed. Uh, you could have Mound Ridge, Hillsboro, second round, El Saline, um, probably Chase County. What do, you, what do you look for out of that? Do you think Mound Ridge gets through um, this substate without a lot of trouble maybe meeting El Saline? Yeah, I think they do win this substate. I think that uh, El Saline could be a, a tough matchup in the finals. I think Moundridge is playing awfully well right now. You know, the one thing that I will say, watch out for, uh, you never want to play Lewis Weeby's Berean Academy team. They, this mm-hmm. isn't their normal 17-18 to win team. They're just 9-11. and 11. But um, first of all, you know, Hillsboro isn't throwing confetti. And boy, you know, if they play Moundridge, Moundridge, won't be jumping up and down with the prospect of playing a Lewis Weeby Brain Academy team, but I do expect Mount Ridge to win this substate. Well, out in Mead, the aforementioned Sterling Black Bears are 18 and 2 as the one. The host Mead Buffaloes are 17 and 3 as the two. Medicine Lodge 16 and 4, the three. And then you got Stanton County 
as the four at 14 and five. Now, Sterling on the injury side of things, Colby Beagley, when I saw them beat El Saline and then in the Mound Ridge game, he did not play a stress fracture in his left foot wearing the walking boot. And I, I didn't really talk to anybody about their plans. I'm sure this all is doctor-related, pain-related. I would say no chance they're going to even try him until maybe next Friday in the semifinals. There's no way he'll play in the 1-8 game and possibly not the semifinals. Maybe try to, if you get to the finals, to play him then. Um, they're still really good without him, Brad, but it, do you think that's a deal? If he can't go at all um, in sub-state, do you think they still eventually get to state? Yeah. Um, first of all, I don't think they'll have much trouble getting to the finals out in Mead. But, you know, playing what would be at that point then potentially a 19-3 and Mead team on their home court, uh, that's not going to be easy. And Medicine Lodge isn't bad either. I know Sterling beat them by double digits this year, but when you take away one cog, uh, it, you know, makes it even tougher. You know, my, my daughter Josie had stress fractures her senior year playing soccer, and unfortunately – there's really not much you can do other than rest it. I mean, that's all you can really you either play through the pain or you rest it. I mean, that's those are your only options. And, you know, fortunately for Josie, she was in the walking boot for, I think, like two weeks. And other than practice, playing or showering, she had to wear that boot at all times. And I was actually kind of impressed at how well it worked. So hopefully Colby Beagley has similar results where, you know, wearing that boot and just immobilizing it at all times can really uh, get him back out there for substate. You know, I, I, again, I, I think that they make it to the finals without a lot of trouble. And then, you know, me Medicine Lodge with him, they're probably a pretty strong favorite without him. They're still favored, probably not quite as much, though. It, can you deaden that type of a, an injury a little bit? Is that is that? Well, dangerous well, to do or um, you take take a little bit of um, painkiller you know I, I you know I can just go based on what you know Josie had to go through um, I just remember how painful it was to, to play on it I mean you know she she would play and, and, and honestly I didn't really notice it during the game but I could tell afterwards that the amount of pain that she was in, it just wasn't fun. You know, the trainer was essentially, Hey, we need to rest this because it's not getting better. And it's only going to get worse. The pain is going to get worse. So it's, it's kind of like shin splints in some ways, Scott, uh, you know, it's, it's not going to get better until you rest it. I mean, you can try playing through it if you want, but um, again, honestly, I don't see the need to play him at all against Wichita County in the first round. And frankly, Scott, I'm not sure if I would even play him, even if he was ready uh, Friday in the sub-state semifinals. I mean, if, if he's ready, you know, cleared and all that, he's ready to go, maybe give him a cameo just to get back out there. But I'm not sure I really want to see him before the sub-state championship game. Well, that's where you kind of wish you had the Thursday, Saturday instead of Friday, Saturday, because trying to go back to back on yeah. something like that would be yeah. difficult. And frankly, if you're not, if, if, if you're not playing Thursday, you think, okay, another day off maybe ready. But frankly, Scott, if you're not playing Friday, you're probably not playing Saturday either. Yeah, so we will we'll see how that all works out. Good luck out there to the Black Bears. The uh, Class 3A at Southeast of Saline on the boys' side. 
Here we go. Heston again, the number one seed. They're 17 and three. Burlington, 14 and five as the two seed. Santa Fe Trail, 11 and eight um, as the three seed. So the boys' side, Brad, not near as loaded as the girls' side. Do you see Heston having much trouble, um, honestly, getting out of this substate? I mean, playing southeast of Celine, out southeast of Celine, uh, you know, that, that wouldn't be easy in the semifinals, especially after that great game they played last year. You know, southeast of Celine is probably very much looking forward to that. I don't know a ton about Burlington. I know that they've been to state plenty of times through the years. they got a good program out there. I Having said that, I can't see a, a scenario just barring a, a horrible game where Heston doesn't go out and win this substate. Yeah, I, I too think that Heston will – I'm not going to say a cakewalk. It's tricky. Um, uh, a good uh, – I would say a real good team, but a, a decent team in southeast of Saline. That will be a tricky one on their home floor. But I think Heston um, going to get back to Hutchison this year. The other one out at Hoisington sees Ellsworth as the top seed at 16-4. and four. Haven at 14-6 and six is the two in the – Host Hoisington Cardinals are eleven and nine. They're the three seed. Brad Lions gets a home game for Substate at seven and thirteen. They're the four seed, so it really drops off after really after the two seed Haven at fourteen and six. Um, this sure looks like a collision course. Haven would be a tricky second round game on Hoisington's home floor, but it sure looks like this could be Haven and Ellsworth matching up in the final. Yeah, Ellsworth kind of had a their kind of back-to-back dream senior classes uh, that were had some good football teams and all that as well. So, you know, I, I think all things considered, Lonnie Paramore, the Haven coach, will probably be more than happy to take his chances out at Hoisington instead of taking on Heston last year. Uh, boy, that was just a bitter disappointment to see two of uh, the top four teams in 3A in the sub-state finals last year. So, uh <laughs> I know we kind of laughed at that other sub-state, that Southeast Sling with girls, but, uh, you know, Haven's been through the grinder so many times. It's nice to see them kind of getting away from it a little bit. Yeah, it is nice to uh, not see them in with Heston, as it always seems like every year they always have been. But it's going to be a fun couple of weeks coming up in the high school ranks, and we'll, we'll break it all down with you as it unfolds. Well, Brad, uh, covered the Lady Warriors and Warriors last night. I know this is the last two regular season games, but for the Lady Warriors, Brad, the postseason actually began last night because they got themselves in um, a big log jam for that final spot. They were in must-win mode last night, and they came out and played a great ball game at home against Oklahoma Wesleyan, actually blowing them out 97-61. to and setting up for the final regular season game at Bethel. Here, here's the deal, Brad. Sterling right now is they're uh, nine and twelve. They're setting in eighth place alone. They're a game back of Ottawa, who they have swept. And Ottawa has to play at home against uh, the second place team in the conference, St. Mary. And then there's a log jam behind them: Avila, Oklahoma Westland, and Bethel are all a game behind Sterling. Sterling plays at Bethel. Bethel won on Sterling's home floor. Oklahoma Westland has to play at Evangel. 
I believe. I don't have the schedule right up. And then Avila at Friends, those are two games where you pretty much expect the home teams to win. And if that's the case, Brad, this is a, a win you get in, lose you go home against Bethel. I mean, if it breaks down like that, it's winner takes all. Um, Sterling could end up as high as the seven if Ottawa would lose and they would win, or they could be out of the tournament. So it all is riding on a five o'clock game in North Newton on Saturday. Yeah, I think this is uh, something pretty well, actually, for Sterling. I think the the fact that they didn't just win the other day, but won by a big margin over a fellow you know, tournament contender that, you know, someone that they're trying to, you know, jostle for position with was uh, quite the eye opener and had been a shot in the arm for this Sterling team. I mean, they've been so many times this year, we keep thinking, well, is this the turning point? Is this the turning point? Is this the turning point? Well, at some point you are what you are. But I've said this all season, Scott, if Sterling gets in, who, if whoever they draw, they're not going to be happy with it. <laughs> I mean, it's especially if Sterling can get up into that seven seed, um, they're going to make someone's life hell in that first round. And look, I'm not saying that this is the Sterling team in the last several years. Uh, we all know it's not. But we also know that they have the capability of playing with anybody in this conference. And you give the Sterling team just a little bit of dose of confidence, which if they if they get in, they will. If they get the seven seed, they will even more. I'm telling you, Scott, I just got a feeling that if they get in, and I'm not saying that they will because, you know, obviously at this point we've kind of learned to expect uh, the unexpected with this team. But if they get in, and especially if they get up to that seven line, watch out. Yeah, they. this is a tough, tough place for them over the years to play at, at Bethel. Uh, Sterling, five and seven on the road um, this season. Uh, so, so we'll see. That's that's a big game coming up for the women on Saturday. The men, Brad, were officially and mathematically eliminated from postseason contention. They played number four, Oklahoma Wesleyan. Again, they teetered on a couple of times in this game, Brad, on getting blown out. Um, they actually battled back, got within six points in the second half or excuse me, was it four? They may have gotten that down to four points and then a timeout and a run made by Oklahoma Wesleyan, but they ended up losing by 11. So the second time this year, they they gave Oklahoma Wesleyan a, a really good game, but Oklahoma Wesleyan just too athletic, too many offensive rebounds in that game for Sterling, just shot the ball a little bit, little bit too well for Sterling to overcome. So they're going to end their season. We'll see if they can end on a high note at Bethel or not, it's just been a, well, it's been a trying second semester for Coach Stang's bunch. Yeah, they've actually won more conference games in, 2000, in you know, 2023 than they have in 2024. Uh, what, 3-12 and 12 since the holidays? And I think, were they 4-2 were they and two pre-Christmas in, in conference play? 5-2. and 5-2, and two, so... Gosh, I mean, it's just, it is just, just a, seem like a strange season. I mean... They, 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 I think that they had, they had the talent. It just, it just never seemed to mesh Scott. And it's just kind of one of those, you know, I kind of liken a little bit to the, to the blue dragon women last year, you know, they, they obviously had the talent. It just never seemed to really mesh. And I, I actually had one of the players in class and she used to say that, that they all got along fine, but you know, there was no clicks or anything like that. There was no arguing. 
they just didn't have any chemistry. And in some ways, it kind of feels like what this Sterling men's team was like this year. Yeah, the, you know, you thought that again they were four and two um, pre Christmas, and then beat Evangel um, to, to be five and two, and have won just two conference games since January third. And it just does feel like that they're not meshing. You watch them offensively, and so often the ball just sticks in one spot. That's just not it, things aren't moving fluidly offensively. Um, the confidence isn't there. Yeah, I know Coach Dang scratching his head. He'll have a lot of a lot of tough meetings after the season to kind of figure out the direction to go recruiting wise and for next year. But it it, it has been. It's been a it's been a head scratcher. I'm just trying to see. They lost at home to Bethel uh, by 12 back on January 10th. So you know that's going to be a a tough one coming up on Saturday. Hopefully they can hopefully they can get right and win and right the ship here heading into the off season. Uh, we will see. That'll be seven o'clock on Saturday. Well, you alluded to the uh, blue dragon men and women, blue dragon women up to number one in the country, still undefeated. What was their weekend like? Well, it went on. <laughs> I don't know who set the schedule, but this week, Scott, get a load of this. They had two, they, they have two road games this week. They took a road trip Wednesday and they'll take a road trip Saturday. To Goodland and the Liberal. Oh gosh, <laughs> who in the world? Said that? That'd be like Sterling taking back-to-back trips to Springfield and like Bartlesville or something. No, it was Kansas City and Bartlesville. That was yeah. But there are no Kansas City and Springfield in the same week. It's like who who, who made that decision? But uh, last Saturday they got a great win over Butler. You know Butler was probably aching for some revenge after Hutch beat them uh, right after Christmas. That kind of set the tone for both teams this semester. And Butler gave a pretty good game, but Hutch ended up winning 71-65. Then they clobbered Northwest Tech. And, you know, their last four games, I expect them to win them all, but none of them are against bad teams. They play Seward, Coffeyville, Barton, and Garden. Now, Barton is a, is a top-four team. But the other three are just kind of right there in the middle. So, you know, it's – I don't think there's any easy games here down the stretch, but you know what? I guarantee that's what uh, Coach John Ons just wants. He wants them. To, he doesn't want a bunch of 91-52 games like they had uh, Wednesday at Northwest Tech. Oh yeah, he wants he wants to be challenged, and you know, and then the whole uh, the challenge will be when you get to Region Six. I know you want to assure yourself a spot in nationals by winning Region Six. Obviously, um, Hutch would ha- would snatching at large i mean that's a no-brainer if for some reason they didn't win region six so i'll be curious to see how he motivates them um the last of the regular season but especially when region six comes around yeah and and john's obviously has been in this situation several times uh this is he's working on i think oh boy his third undefeated regular season Right now, if they could, if they would run the table here, it would be the third time that they have gone undefeated in his time uh, in the regular season. So it's not uncharted territory, but uh, yeah, I think that at this point, you know, he's probably the motivation is like, hey, we want to be number one going into nationals. We want to be the top dog at nationals. Absolutely, um, they they want to run in there undefeated and get that top C. Well, how are the the Blue Dragon men? I know they're surging at the right time. They're right towards the top of the standings. Yeah, tough loss on Saturday to Butler because Butler, uh, a fellow top four team, and, you know, right now Barton at the top of the standings. I think Barton 
like the Hutch women, don't really have a ton to worry about if they don't win Region 6. I think Barton is in no matter what at this point. And then you got Hutch Cowley and, and Butler all kind of jockeying for uh, that second position right now. I think right now Region 6 is a is a three-team uh, region. But, again, you got three teams jostling for second, so someone is going to be left out right now among Cowley, Hutch, and Butler. But they came back uh, well. Good win over Northwest Tech on Wednesday. Northwest Tech actually has a pretty decent men's team. And they kind of like, kind of like with the women, uh, other than playing at Barton on March 2nd, you know, Barton's obviously the top dog. You know, the other three games, Stewart, Coffeyville, and Garden. Again, no really bad team there, but, you know, not, I, I, those are three games I still kind of expect Hutch to take care of business for. Yeah, every time we talk about uh, the Hutch teams, it gets me more and more amped up for the uh, Region 6 semifinals and finals I get to cover at the sports arena. Those just keep looking, those matchups keep looking better and better as we get closer. Yeah, I think and another big thing to also consider is if, uh, you know, I think you want to avoid that four seed so you don't have to play Barton, you know, in, in, until until the championship game. I think uh, that's another kind of motiv- motivating factor to try to stay in the top three so you don't have to play Barton. Oh, absolutely. You always want to avoid the number one as long as you can. But again, we'll keep track of uh, the goings on as we get closer to the uh, college postseason tournaments. Well, Brad, the Jayhawks, after the uh, drubbing they suffered at the hands of Texas Tech, rebounded nicely with a road win at then number 25, Oklahoma, uh, 67 to 57. And then finally, after so many of those Saturday, Monday turnarounds, they get a week off and will play again on Saturday um, when they host Texas. And then the following Tuesday will host BYU. But KU, what, what did you see in the Oklahoma game that you liked? Do, do you feel like um, – I'll, maybe a light bulb came on a little bit for the Jayhawks in that road win. What did I like? I like they won. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they won a road game um, and they have- a, a, against a good team. Yeah. I mean, Oklahoma's a tournament team. They were ranked last week. I know that they were kind of shorthanded, but, you know, so Kansas has been shorthanded, so I don't feel really feel sorry for them. Um, you know, the thing that I kind of liked is how they bounced is you know kind of how they bounced back from that loss, uh, their previous game to uh, to Texas Tech. I mean, they just got they they got their doors blown off against Texas Tech, and then they came back and got a ten point win at Oklahoma. I think the the thing that really I liked more than anything else was how they bounced back, and they were down double digits in this game, Scott. I mean, I think it was an eleven point game late in the first half, and I was kind of thinking, here we go again. You yeah. know, they're going to fall behind fifteen points second half, and they'll lose by 13, 15 points, but. You know, they, they, they showed some toughness, and I, I like what Fran Fischella said. He essentially said that that could be the game that really kind of gets Kansas back on gear. And, you know, we'll, we'll obviously we'll know more uh, these after these next few games. But, you know, they, they've got BYU, and, or they got Texas, BYU, at Baylor, K-State, and at Houston still. If Kansas goes 4-1, and one, they're not going to win the conference. But if they go 4-1, and one, and let's say that one loss is to Houston – and let's say it's a good loss. Let's say it's like, you know, 67 to 65 where they got a chance to win it at the end. I think that they'll like I, – I would take that right now going into Kansas City because that to me, not only is that another road win against Baylor, but you would get uh, two quality home wins over Texas and BYU. I would assume that they would go out and knock the lights out of K-State. 
But um, it, I, there's still so much to play for. There's still so much unknown. Um, what did we learn against Oklahoma? I don't know that we really did, other than the fact that they probably proved themselves that they can win on the road. Yeah, I mean, and that's not a, that's a, that's a good thing at this point. I, I look at the standings. They're in a three-way tie for third with Baylor and Tech, a game behind Iowa State, and two back of Houston. Uh, where would you say they do that three and two, four and one, they get maybe to the semifinals or finals of the big 12 tournament, where would you project them seed wise? Or, or, are they going to be on a two line or are they going to be dropping down maybe to a three or a four? Well, I mean, with, with the way college basketball has been this year, I don't really know, but I'd say, let's say they go four and one and then maybe losing the semifinals of the Big 12 tournament, I, I think you're probably looking at a three. If they go four and one and make it to the finals and lose, maybe a two. If they kind of bottom out a little bit, go three and two and lose in the semifinals, you could maybe see them drop to four. So I, I'd say right now the most likely seed is probably three, potentially with a two, and maybe down to a four. Yeah, I, I, I kind of am thinking a three at this point. Um, we know – they have the talent. I think I saw something that they have, was it seven wins this season? Is it over top 10 teams? And it's the most in the country. Yeah, I think it's uh, maybe ranked teams. I'm not sure uh, exactly what it is, but th- they're going to have a strong resume. I mean, there's there's no question about that. They're going to have a strong resume. And frankly, Scott, with the regular season still going on, they're going to have opportunities for more uh, to add to that resume. And, and then they got the Big 12 tournament where they can add to it even more. Well, you can tell what the nation thinks of the Big 12, Brad. They're, they're 20 and 6. They're 8 and 5 in the conference. They're ranked ninth in the country. And they're, right now they're in a tie for third in their own conference. So that tells you how good um, night in and night out the competition is. You're just, you're just beating up on one another. And, and we knew that going in. This is one of the best um, conferences in the country. So we'll see that the thing that Still, the one thing that would worry me about March Madness, Brad, is I haven't seen the consistency to win um, those tough games over a three-week period that you have to do to, to, to go all the way. That, that would be the one thing I would, I would like to see down this stretch now, try to build some consistency. Even if you lose a game, if you still play well, um, then, I'd, then I'd feel better about chances at a deep run in March yeah, yeah, and Kansas, frankly, has not been very good in the second game of those little, you know, Saturday, Monday, Saturday, Tuesday, whatever it is you want to call it. They haven't been very good in the second game, which, you know, really worries you. I think Bill Self's record in the first game of those little, you know, pods is very good, and his record in the second game is not so good. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I, I, I do think that the consistency is still something that we, frankly, just don't know enough about. We'll see again. This Saturday is the home game. It shows five o'clock against Texas and then a seven o'clock game at home against uh, right now. Number 25 BYU. That would be on Tuesday. Well, Brad, we've had a little time since the uh, Super Bowl championship for the Chiefs has concluded. Of course, we had the horrific uh, shooting at the Super Bowl parade now, there's been two, um, well, we thought there was juveniles, but now it's actually two adults that have been charged with uh, 
uh, murder, attempted murder, and uh, sorted other charges in that. Um, I, it, it, it smells, certainly, they haven't come right out and say it. It, it appears gang-related or a, a gang dispute that um, rained out all the gunfire. So that that's still all coming out. Um, off the field, of course, um, everybody always really busy. They're still talking about the Chiefs active. Will they go after a, maybe Mike Evans from Tampa Bay? That's been a name mentioned a lot to fill that wide receiver position. Um, I did see today Tommy Townsend. They've already signed another punter, Townsend, an uh, unrestricted free agent. They signed this uh, Ariza. He punted for the Bills. He's, um, his legal trouble just got settled. Um, there were some accusations made of him that were eventually dropped in court. What, what do you, what do you think of all the goings on <clears throat> so far off the field for, um, start with the, the punting situation? I really, I really hate seeing Townsend leave. Yeah. Uh, you know, Townsend has been, uh, and this is going to sound funny, but his, uh, development as a holder has been as impressive as anything. There's a time where he frankly was not a very good holder. And then we can't forget how he got, how he got down that, uh, hold for the 57 yard field goal that butker made mm-hmm. ah, man it's it, it's always tough uh you know colquitt was always a big part of a lot of those teams but you know frankly i think punting is one of those positions where you probably need a revolving door especially in the case for the chiefs you know because of the the contracts that they're going to need to try to dole out to like the chris jones and the jerry sneeds of the world so if they can find someone like they evidently did on uh, on a pretty dirt cheap contract, I say go for it. Um, I guess we'll find out more uh, as it as it develops. You know, the one thing I it always it always sucks to say something like this, but you know, I, I just don't want the Chiefs to stand pat very much. Uh, I still think Chris Jones has a year or two left as an elite pass rusher, but I don't want to see him you know, 33, 34, and just watching his skills deteriorate. I mean, that was kind of the problem with the Royals, I think, is that they held on to all those guys when maybe they should have started unloading them and started to rebuild sooner than what they did. You know, the Patriots were notorious for their their dealings and getting rid of guys after helping when they win Super Bowl, and they just kept winning again. And... I also like. I know there's some European club soccer teams that do that too. They 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 help you win a championship, and then they say, "All right, thanks, get out of here now." It's ruthless, but I I really think that the business of the NFL. I don't think you can stand pat for very long, Scott. I mean, uh, I, I maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know, but I think the Chiefs need to continue to um, make shrewd business decisions, and like like they, like they did with Tyree Kill. Yeah. Um... I, I did see something that m- may help. Uh, I saw that the salary cap for next season is going to increase from yeah. 224.8 to 250 million. Um, is that enough in itself to get Jones and Sneed re-signed? Or is that still just looking like you're probably going to have to choose one or the other? Yeah, you know, I think a lot's just going to depend on what they want. Uh, I still think that Chris Jones is the kind of guy who's going to go after the money, and I, I I can't blame him. I don't think he's going to be interested in getting a home a hometown discount or anything like that. I mean, maybe the one thing I do hold on with like Chris Jones, especially Chris Jones, is this: 
a chance for a three-peat and, frankly, immortality. I do think that there's a little bit, little bit to be said about that, where maybe Chris Jones throws everything aside and says, you know what, I'll give Kansas City one more year at a discount because I want to try for a football immortality here. Yeah, um, I'm looking at the – Jones is 29, Snead is 27. Um, boy, I tell you, it just – I'm like you. I, I, I would worry about, you know, giving Jones, say, you know, a six-year – or seven-year deal where he would be 35, 36 years old at the end of that. I think you could give Snead a six-year deal. He'd still be just 33. We've seen a lot of good defensive backs play very well into their early to mid-30s. I think the the investment there would be wiser. Now, of course, could you if you can get both of them, maybe get Jones in a four-year deal, something to that effect. Um, that might be better. We already know Willie Gay has said he's he's going he's moving on. Um, we know that he's not going to be there. Um, that'll free up some money, but then you got to got to replace that position. It's just, like you said, it's you, you, there's never an off day in the NFL because behind the scenes you're, you're you're looking at this stuff continuously. And then, then of course the other big part is what are you doing in in the receiver. Are you taking that high draft pick on one? Are you getting a Mike Evans in free agency? What are you doing there? But drafting. Drafting, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've thought about this in case you couldn't tell. Yeah. Um, if you could get uh, Mike Evans at and not mortgage the farm, I would do it. Because you're talking, if, if, if you're looking at right now, you're working for the three-peat, and that is top priority. I'd go get Mike Evans. I really would. I think that veteran presence, he's still incredibly productive. He don't drop the ball. He is so sure-handed. I would do it. I still think you need the draft. But um, if it was Snead or Jones, I'd have to pick one or the other. I'd go with Legereus. Yeah, I would too. I would go with Snead. Um, Boy, he's just a lockdown kind of guy, much like McDuffie. As far as wide receiver, yeah, I – I don't want them to break the bank on a receiver. If they would have done that, they would have done it for Tyreek Hill. So it's it seems pretty obvious the Chiefs are not going to be interested in breaking the bank for a wide receiver. And at this point, I do think that the Chiefs' top pick is going to be a wide receiver. I know this is one of the deepest wide receiver classes ever. So, you know, maybe we'll see some wheeling and dealing, maybe move, trying to move up a little bit. But at this point, Scott, I think the Chiefs' top priority in the draft is going to be wide receiver. What do you think about the offensive tackle positions? That that was um, something they thought they had shored up. Times not very good this year. Um, John Taylor was a penalty machine. Um, they they struggled to tackles. Did you think that they they stay with that? Do you think they look to um, make a move and and at that position? I don't think you can discount the importance of protecting your number one asset, that's Patrick. <laughs> Patrick Mahomes, obviously. Uh, I think in the case of the offensive line, I think you always have to be looking to upgrade it. Yeah. And, and I mean, that doesn't mean, again, that doesn't mean you break the bank for somebody or, or whatever, but you've got to be able to protect Patrick Mahomes. You've got to protect your, your, your franchise, your number one asset. At this point, a top five quarterback in NFL history, maybe even a top three quarterback in NFL history. So uh, unlike wide receiver, I don't think you're necessarily constantly looking to upgrade there. I just think it's so bad right now that you have to. But with the offensive line, uh, I think you're always looking 
out of one eye to see if you can upgrade it. Yeah, that, that'll be fascinating to see what they do um, on the offensive line, how much they do, how little they do. I mean, the, the, the inside is fantastic with Trey Smith, Creed Humphrey, Joe Tooney. You just have to wonder about uh, Brown and Taylor out there on the edge. That's, that's what seemed to be where the pressure came from. And one interesting thing I did see too, Brad, we knew this Chiefs defense um, was very good. Obviously, they were uh, so different defensive-oriented this year. But I saw this, Brad, that the Chiefs held 20 of their 21 opponents this season under 25 points. That's the most in such games in NFL history to play to hold play that many games and hold the opponent under 25 points, 20 of 21 times. That's just, that's pretty impressive. Especially for a team that didn't take the ball away very much. Mm-hmm. Which is yes. history. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I just think that makes it even more impressive. They just had a bend, but don't break mentality and made big stops when they had to. And gosh, I mean, again, for a team that rarely took the ball away, that makes it even more impressive. So I'm sure we'll, we'll talk a lot more. Um, about the Chiefs, you know, we didn't really talk about a couple of the, the the tantrums that we saw during the Super Bowl. I know a lot was made of the uh, Travis Kelsey bumping into to Coach Reed, yelling at him that he pretty much, you know, don't you know keep me on the field because he, that was the play that uh, the fumble, of, uh, the Chiefs down there inside the ten on Pacheco, and he was out for that game. And then, of course, uh, Rasheed Rice upset on the sideline when he was uh, open on a particular pass play. Um, what, what, do you, what did you make out of either of those, uh, what people would call tantrums during the game of the Super Bowl? Oh, I mean, Kelsey was obviously in the wrong. No one's going to defend his actions there. But Andy Reid didn't seem to think it's a big deal. I'll, 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 I'll yield to Andy Reid on that one. And what do, what do you think about Rasheed Rice? Uh, kind of getting upset with Mahomes, you mean? Yes. Yeah, you know, my brother brought that up uh, before overtime. He's like, hey, Mahomes had Rice wide open. The only thing I'll say about that is that, you know, look, I, I, I know Rasheed Rice was thinking that, hey, I could have won the Super Bowl there for us. That play took three seconds, Scott. I mean, it's not like Mahomes had time to survey the defense or anything like that. And frankly, let's, let, let's be honest. One pass to win the Super Bowl. Where's Mahomes going? <laughs> yeah, Kelsey. Yeah, he's going to Kelsey. Yeah, I mean, he's going to Kelsey on, on that play. So, um, I, I look, I understand Rice's frustration. He, again, he's thinking, I could have been the hero. I could have won us the Super Bowl there. But, again, Mahomes had that, – that play lasted three seconds from snap to incomplete. So, it's not like he had a ton of time to survey anything. Yeah, I, I, I didn't make much out of it. I, I'm with you. If uh, Andy Reid didn't think a lot about that, uh, I'm sure he likes the um, the intensity and the wanting to be out there of Kelsey. If he didn't make much out of it, I, I didn't think. I just thought it was guys that were that were so into it that they wanted, you know, to, to make their point and to, to move forward from that. So I didn't make a ton of it either. Uh, the interesting thing, Brad – you see all of these uh, conspiracy theorists out there about all the the missed calls and wh- whatever it was in the Super Bowl, Brad. There, there was, there's been some, and uh, Brad, this is just this just goes to people being stupid. Um, they talk about the game-winning play for the Chiefs there in overtime that there was 
illegal man downfield. Um, they freeze, of course, the the caption that shows the two chief linemen, um, one possibly two yards downfield. I've seen different opinions of, yes, it was, no, it wasn't. They have to be a, a full two yards downfield before it's a legal man um, downfield. But this one bonehead, Brad, he says, and this is just a sheer, he, he must have been on the 49er staff because he didn't know the overtime rules. He said, it's touchdown, shouldn't have counted, time would have expired, game was over. Well, Brad, we know that this was a brand new game. If it was going to another quarter and it would have been first down, had they called that penalty, it would have been first down and goal from what, the eight? And yep. the Chiefs still most likely get it in the end zone. And for another thing, Brad, do you think Andy Reid is a fairly intelligent man? Yeah, especially when it comes to food and football. Yeah, I, tr- I trust his judgment in both areas. So if the if the clock is running down under 10 seconds and truly the game is going to be over and he has, oh, I think a, a couple of timeouts, and if they don't score on that play, they lose, do you think he would have used a timeout? I would hope so. Okay. I mean, it's just these people, that, they go out there and they, they spout this stuff off and they don't have a clue in the world. First, they don't know the rules. And for a second, I don't know that it was a penalty or not. I mean, it was just the stupidity. And and some people want to point out that they say that there was a legal men downfield on the 49ers trick play for a touchdown. Um, well, I mean, <laughs> let, let, let's go back to the winning play. First of all, you can be as far downfield as you want an offensive lineman if you're engaged in a block. You, you can be 50 yards down the field if you're engaged in a block. So – that that's only if you're not engaged in the block about being downfield, because if you're in, and, and, and I know what, I, I know what the, they're talking about. And the, the, the lineman in question was engaged in the block. So there's no penalty to be had. So let's go on to the second point that let's say that it was illegal man downfield. Okay. Let's, 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 let's just say that. Well, there's no 10 second runoff because it's the end of the first quarter of overtime, but Scott, let's say it is a 10 second runoff. Guess what? The Chiefs had two timeouts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you- they can take a they can take a timeout to avoid the ten second. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I I I can't I can't do it with stupid people. I know it. it, it when you argue with a, a stupid person, you just sound stupid. So there's no <laughs> these people that they're coming out. I mean, it's just it's just chief haters that are um, again. He maybe he was on the 49ers staff, but. Uh, um, Again, that was just some of the interesting uh, comments coming out of that. I'm sure, again, we'll have a lot more um, information on the Chiefs in the upcoming weeks leading to the draft and the active free agent market. Well, a couple other places I wanted to go, Brad. I, I saw this, I think, earlier today that um, Salvador Perez, Brad, now stands alone of that core Royals team that were world champions back in 2015 as Eric Hosmer has officially hung it up. Brad, I know Mike Moustaka signed a minor league contract with the White Sox, but all the rest of that core group has since retired. Um, what 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 do you think? Of course, Hosmer never found near the success with the Padres after leaving the Royals, but certainly was uh, such an integral part of those uh, Royals two World Series appearances and their one championship. 
um, during his tenure. I, I, it just was interesting when I saw that he, uh, he hung it up. Yeah, Haas was obviously going to be a Royals Hall of Famer one day, uh, one day very soon. I just think we're going to look back at those, uh, what, 13 to 16 for the Royals, especially the 14 and 15 teams, and, and almost scratch our heads and like, how do they do this? <laughs> I mean, you, you look at the, the, the glory years of the, of the Royals back in the 70s and the 80s. Let's even go back to 85. Well, I mean, you had George Brett, a first ballot Hall of Famer, and frankly, probably one of the top 25 players in baseball history. So you had a Hall of Famer. I mean, I don't know if Salvi will maybe make the Hall of Fame. I mean, that's that remains to be seen. Uh, you know, you had Frank White, one of the best defensive players in baseball history. You know, eight, what he won seven or eight gold gloves, and he was, you know, again regarded as one of the greatest defensive players in baseball history. I, I know they didn't really have any other like surefire Hall of Famers, but you, you know, Brett Saberhagen had an injury real career, and if he hadn't been injured for a good chunk of his career. He probably would have been a borderline Hall of Fame pitcher. I mean, Brett Saberhagen at his best was absolutely insane. He was so good. And they had some other good pitchers, you know, like Lee Brandt and, and uh, you know, Quisenberry for a time was the most dominant pitcher or closer in the American League. I mean, I just look at the 2014 and 15 Royals. You just had a bunch of good players who love playing for each other, love playing for Kansas City who just played at their absolute peak for two or three years. I mean, it's really remarkable. When we look back at that Royals team, we're going to say, how the heck did that team win it? <laughs> and I think that's what made it so much fun. That was right. That was just a group that um, they just seemed like average, ordinary dudes that were out there that just, you could tell, Brad, the way that they played, they were playing it like it was a kid's game. They were having fun and i think that's the whole point that that's what made it so much fun um to watch that team win and now that all of them except well again mustaka is still trying to catch on uh, maybe we'll see him get called up next year with the white Sox. but salvi is the lone remainder of that core on a noted a little side note of the roars i saw this come up today wanted to get your opinion somebody was asking um the question Greatest Royals relief pitcher of all time. If it's not Quisenberry or, or Jeff Montgomery, I'm not sure who it is. Uh, Greg Holland and Wade Davis were obviously dominant for a very brief time. And boy, that dominance was, was frankly dominant. I mean, the 2015 bullpen of Herrera, Oh, gosh, am I forgetting someone? Or was it 14 where they had Herrera, Davis, and Holland? HDH. Yeah, and then in 15, it was uh, Herrera and Holland. And Davis. And it, it, uh, not, not Holland. Holland had moved on to someone else by that time. So Davis was a closer by that time. Maybe I'm forgetting somebody. But, gosh, I mean, that bullpen was, was untouchable. It uh, really was. I mean, the Royals were able to shorten games to six or seven innings. I, I think the answer that I saw that I agreed with the most all-time best for the Royals was Dan Quisenberry. Single season best. There was nobody better than Wade Davis in 2015. Um, you, you talk about lights out when he came out there. Um, that was just impressive. There was a game in that uh, that postseason in 2015. I don't remember if this was the championship series or the World Series to where I think that 
the leadoff man, what happened when Davis came in? Uh, I, I can't remember if he gave up a hit or how it worked, but a guy runner got the third, and I believe it was maybe the tying run at that point. And there was nobody out. Brad, the ball, he never allowed a ball in play the rest of that inning and got those three outs. They could not get a ball in play, not a fly ball, not a little bleeder. Um, it was either a foul ball called strike or one. Uh, it was just, it was amazing to watch him. It just pissed him off that that guy got the third and it's like, okay, he's, he's going to be standing there when this inning ends. And I don't know that I ever saw anybody quite that dominant. Again, it was a short period, but uh, that one season, I would say he was, the, he was the best, but th that was the best answer. I saw quiz all time, best, single season Wade Davis I think part of that 15 season Greg Holland started out as a closer and then he may have gotten hurt because I'm looking at the 15 season this this this, were, this was Wade Davis's uh, season in 2015 when the Royals won the World Series eight and one 17 saves he finished 24 games and appeared in 69 so it's obvious that he wasn't the closer of the entire season correct 0 0.94 ERA <laughs> yeah minuscule yeah yeah i think yeah he that again then that made it so much fun because when the, the call to the pin came and in, in in the postseason to wade davis the other team might as well just get the gear and pack it up because it was over um and it was fitting they brought him in once they got the the, the big lead in extra innings in game five against the mets they brought him in to to close that one out but i, I thought that was interesting to have a short conversation on uh one other spot brad I, we, I love these types of records when they're set did you happen to see that the ncaa rebounding record for women's did you see that it was recently broken i did not it happened again this is all divisions of ncaa it happened in d2 um, at francis marion college their 511 senior center Lauren Taylor in a game against North Greenville. She had a double-double, Brad. 34 points, 44 boards. Wow. It broke the old record by four. Um, I, I saw that jump. I mean, it's like, are you kidding me? She had 34 points, but she had 10 more rebounds than points. <laughs> wow. Unbelievable. Um, of game that that she put forth I can't remember I think she was averaging I think 18 boards a game coming in if I remember correctly but yeah 34 points 44 boards man that's uh that's some serious Moses Malone stuff there <laughs> that's absolute dominance of the paint but again uh, congratulations to uh Lauren Taylor and also of course um um Caitlin Clark, Brad, and we'd be remiss if we didn't men mention her breaking the um, all-time women's scoring record. And she is within reach, Brad, of breaking the all-time college scoring record, men or women's. Um, that would be, of course, held by uh, Pistol Pete Maravich. Of course, a side note there, he did it in three seasons. Um, Clark would do it in four seasons, but, but still just a, a, an amazing run she's having at the University of Iowa. Yeah, yeah, I was actually going to talk about her on my final thoughts, but yeah, she actually, uh, it's, uh, I mean, 
what 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 a draw she's been for uh, for college basketball. Well, we'll we'll save the rest of that for your final thoughts. Um, we'll, we'll move into it. Well, since you want to do that, Brad, I'll let you go second tonight, and I've got one. Um, I love these inspirational stories, Brad, and I came across this one. Um, I think over the weekend, Brad, there was uh, for the first time ever in Division One baseball. Um, this happened with a player with Eastern Carolina University. His name is Parker Bird. He's a sophomore infielder and pitcher. He became the first ever to play in a D1 baseball game with a prosthetic leg. He um, appeared as a pinch hitter and uh, drew a walk and then was pinched run for, I believe it was later in the game, ECU had gotten off to a really good start to hit a sizable lead at this point. He lost his leg two years ago um, in a boating accident. I'm not sure how much of the leg, whether above the knee, below the knee, I didn't research it enough, but it uh, doesn't matter. I mean, seriously, to in two years to have rehabbed to the point that you can play D1 baseball um, with a prosthetic leg is just absolutely incredible. Yeah, I'm not sure that there's a more underrated sport in terms of great moments and drama and storylines than uh, major college baseball. Yeah, I, I did see this story, actually. And, uh, man, it's uh, just just being able to walk again and let alone play baseball was, was, was a victory. And for him to get a chance to go out there and, you know, continue his dream and play major college baseball, Division One college baseball, I mean um, – you just can't help but feel happy for him. I mean, uh, hopefully he gets some more, some more opportunities to get out there and uh, and play some more. Uh, I would love to see him pitch. Again, it lists him as an infielder, which I'd, I would assume would be first base, um, where you don't have to have quite the the range at first base to cover. Um, but I, w- I would love to see him pitch. But, I mean, it, it makes you go back to Bo Jackson, Brad, not just playing professional baseball, but playing professional baseball at a high level on an artificial hip. I mean, it just, I remember when he did that and and, I mean, I guess we shouldn't have been surprised since it was Bo Jackson, but still I look back and then still amazed when, when I watched him do that. Yeah. I think he hit a home run his first game back, didn't he? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Oh, that the story almost brings me to tears that he tells because his mother was dying of cancer when he was rehabbing and had the surgery, but hadn't decided. And she asked him um, if he was going to play professional, go back and play professional baseball again. And he said he hadn't decided, but he said if he did, he said he would do it for her. Um, and before he came back with the White Sox, she had passed away. And true bow form, he was going to dedicate his first home run to her. And as you alluded to it. He planted one in his first at bat in the right field seats, um, got the ball back. I think he uh, bought the ball from whoever collected that home run ball, um, put it, encased it in acrylic. And if you know, once you do that, that's permanent. And he has said many times that that was the greatest moment of his sporting career ever was that one home run. And it, it was just amazing that he, he was able to do that. But on the grand stage, he always seemed to, to come through, and he, and he did again there for his mom. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and just uh, feel kind of like we're robbed of a great career, but uh, he's still 
he still made the most of it even after the fact. But uh, again, congratulations to Parker Bird. I'll be fascinated to watch um, his career continue there at East Carolina. So um, cat out of the bag a little bit on your final thoughts, Brad, but let's, let's, let's move on to uh, Caitlin Clark. I, I, I get the modern media landscape and hot takes and all that. And it drives you crazy. It drives me crazy. Um, it's no longer, it's whatever drives ratings and whoever can say the hottest, Oh, Patrick Mahomes is only the fifth best quarterback in the NFL or this, that, or whatever, or the, the chargers are the favorite to win next year for the 50th straight year. I mean, so, so I get it. The questioning, especially of Jay Williams on Caitlin, uh, Caitlin Clark's greatness is asinine. I don't know if you saw it, but he's questioning Caitlin Clark's greatness because she hasn't won an NCAA championship yet. Scott, how many NCAA championships did Stephen Curry win? Zero. Scott, how many NCAA championships did Larry Bird win? Also zero. Scott, how many NCAA championships did Wilt Chamberlain win? Uh, None. Okay. I'm not disputing the importance of championships, even, even at the college level. How much different would Danny Manning's career be looked at if he didn't win a championship? As great as he was... If they lose that game to Oklahoma, it's 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 a great career, but it's it's looked at differently because Manning won a championship. So I'm not disputing the importance of winning championships, but at the college level, it's a little bit different because you have limited time to win it in college. You know, Patrick Mahomes never even came close to a championship in college. We're we're not questioning how great he is now because he never won a championship in college. I mean, this, this whole, and again, I'm not trying to dispute the importance of winning championships. And yes, it it is important when it comes to, to legacies. So I'm not, I'm not disputing that, but let's be honest in college. It's different because again, you have limited time to question how great Caitlin Clark is because she doesn't have an NCAA championship is one of the most asinine things I've ever heard in my life. Very few women have done to college basketball, what she has. And there's been some great players out there. I mean, Lynette Woodard was like the really first big draw in women's college basketball. You know, she played for the Globetrotters. Look at what Jackie Stiles did to, to women's college basketball. And she was such a big draw in the Missouri Valley, you know, uh, whether it was at Missouri State or at Wichita State or any other place that they would play on the road. She was a big draw. Let's not forget that. Um, Brittany Griner was a big draw. I mean, she was, you know, people would come up to watch her play and see this, how great the six foot eight women's basketball player was. So let's, let's not discount the importance of, of what Caitlin Clark has done for the women's game and is continuing to do for the women's game. And let's also not forget, she was an eyelash away from a championship last year. They made it to the championship game. It just, it just bothers me that, we, that sports media talking heads have to try to find a reason to piss on something. And to say that Caitlin Clark's greatness is in question because she hasn't won an NCAA championship is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. Yeah. Uh- it goes back to my stupid <laughs> comment earlier from uh, people just they, they they just don't know what they're talking about in this situation and because uh, some people will point to well she just takes all the shots Brad do you know how many assists she averages per game by chance I don't eight and a half <laughs> do you know where that ranks in college basketball women I'd probably say top five how about number one wow and you know where she is all time. On the assist list, I think I just heard this the other day. I would probably say top five. <laughs> uh, approaching that, I think she's sixth right now. Okay. So th- to say that she doesn't share the basketball with her teammates 
is also another asinine comment because she averages 32.8, which is first in the nation, and and eight and a half assists a game, also first in the nation. So she's setting up her teammates. Of course, the defense obviously is going to be drawn to her, um, but she sets up her teammates for a lot of easy baskets. So yeah, I just I. I completely discount that. There's been so Jackie Styles. We should discount her greatness because she didn't win um, a national title. Um, is just is is sheer stupidity. Yeah, I, I think you need to appreciate instead of downgrade or 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 whatever. Pick apart these moments because you just don't see players like Caitlin Clark and Jackie Styles. They come along once in a while. You should enjoy that instead of just picking it apart for whatever reason to try to get ratings or whatever. It does. It does drive me as bad as it does you. Well, it's like I, someone said about regarding the Mahomes versus Brady debate. Someone said, "Why, why, why are Brady fans and Mahomes fans fighting? Why, why not? They, why, why not just appreciate both for who they are and remind every other team just how crappy your quarterback is." Absolutely, and we know Mahomes is better than Brady, anyhow, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. I should have said Montana and, and Mahomes. I'm sorry. But, well, yeah, and we know Montana is better than Brady. But oh, the, <laughs> yeah. Again, yeah. Just, just, uh, yeah. Just stop it. That's all I gotta say. Just, just leave it alone and and enjoy what she has done and what she may still do um, when the women's tournament comes around so that was uh, the podcast for this week again a lots of postseason basketball we will be able to talk about coming up next week but for tonight's view from the press box for brad hallier this is scott hogan god bless have a great week